My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, first things first, uh, thank the committee for having me here. And uh, you guys had a consolation and you were really desperate, so they gave them my name and here I am. Um, <clears throat> So I'm very grateful to be here to participate. So uh, thank you again to the committee and uh, for Lee for taping and uh, some of the folks uh, I haven't seen in a while due to this COVID thing and some I do run into. I want to thank all the speakers. Uh, Tommy, you were great last night. Uh, and I'll speak this afternoon. Uh, great job. And uh, my favorite AA on the whole, in the whole planet uh, is my Polly. I love you. Thank you for just being you. Um, I have two uh, dear friends uh, working the tape uh, board out there, uh, Jimmy A. and Charlie T., who are like brothers to me. And when I get around those guys, I get soul food. Uh, and I'm very grateful that they're here and I get to see them and uh, kind of get on each other a little bit. But uh, AA is a beautiful thing. Um, I just want to share a quick story. Uh, I'm going to embarrass Polly. Uh, she sponsors Marion, uh, my better half. And um, <clears throat> thank you for taking such good care of her. I had come home from Minnesota after my seven treatment center, which I was away for one year, and uh, a gentleman at uh, Gopher State Tape Library gave me some tapes, and he said, I think you want to listen to this one. <clears throat> and I said, it's a woman in AA I can't identify. And I put the cassette tape in, and um, as Charlie, as uh, Tommy said, I said, newcomers, we have this thing called cassette tapes, believe it or not, and they play pretty good. And I listened to this woman speak, and I don't know Polly from anything, and I cried the first time I heard it. And I listened to it again, and again, and again, and again. And every time it spoke, I heard something different. And it was a straight AA talk, but one thing I've learned about her, uh, as you know, she speaks from the heart, and it always touches the heart. And I kept saying to myself, one day I'd like to meet this woman. Many years went by, and I go out on a talk to a town called Bellingham, Washington, which I never knew existed. I even know what the place was. I was sponsoring a guy out there, and it was a group anniversary. And he says, my group wants you to come out and do an anniversary talk. So off I go. And that's why I meet Marion. And it was one of those things where they had a little uh, speaker uh, luncheon for me, and I'm sitting there, and I don't know anyone, and this little blonde walks in with a leather jacket and cowboy boots, and I'm thinking about I'm getting married again. It was like that. <laughs> and, uh, and we went out. We, it was a while before we went out on our first date. You know, we got to talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, very matter-of-fact, maybe you know my sponsor, Polly P., I says, Polly Pistol? She says, that's my sponsor. I almost proposed right there when she said that. <laughs> and I says, if it's a possibility one day if I can get to meet this woman, you have no idea what she's done for me, just via cassette. That's why I love guys like Lee and the guys who tape, because you never know where those CDs are going to land, especially when we're new. The cat would one day, a CD to get you through a dark night, a long day of someone that resonates with the soul. I can make it another day, or I can get to the next meeting. That's what I was doing. So many years later, I'm speaking up at the Liberty Bell Roundup in Pennsylvania, and Polly's on, on, on the flyer as well. And I go up there, and Marion says, I'll introduce you. <clears throat> so in the restaurant, they have this, in the hotel, they have this little restaurant. And we walk to the back, and she says, that's Polly back there. And she, Polly had her back to us. So I'm feeling myself, you know, vibrating. You're about to meet your hero. It's like Mickey Mantle of AA for me. <clears throat> and, um, 
but I'm from Brooklyn. I, I, I can do this, you know. And I walk in with a little swagger. Uh, and by the way, there's a lot of New Yorkers in New Jersey, folks. Please make yourself at home. Hit somebody. But, um, um, so I get to the back of the restaurant, and uh, Polly turns around and gives me the Polly hello. And I start to cry. And I'm having a meltdown. I'm falling apart in front of her. And I got one of the Polly hugs, and it, it's one of those uh, bright spots of my life. And uh, thank you for being in our life. Every time she calls the house and she's done with Marin, I said, did she ask about me? It's like, uh, <laughs> I don't suffer from self-centeredness anymore, though. June 23rd, 1988 was when God separated me from alcohol. And uh, my life today is one of doing my very best to live in all three sides of a triangle. Uh, I do none of this perfect. I'll tell you on the front end, I'm not a model nor an example, as my sponsor says, but I chop wood and carry water and try to carry the vision of God's will to all my activities. And I make tons of mistakes, but I keep in the saddle and keep riding. June 23rd, 1988, I had no idea sobriety was going to show up in my life. I had no idea God was about to enter my life. The same way now, 33 years later, I don't know when God's about to show up and interrupt my life and put me in a direction that I didn't see coming. The same way I can't see alcoholism showing up on me, but you can. And I was living in an abandoned building in an area called Alphabet City in lower Manhattan. And back in the 80s and 70s, it was a rough place to be. People who couldn't afford to get out were forced to live there, and the rest of the people rolling through the streets were like me. Junkies and winos and the crack thing hit, and it, was, it wasn't a good place. And I was homeless for about six months or more. I lost contact with my family. I didn't believe in my church anymore. I'm a cradle Catholic. I knew that didn't work. I've been through six treatment centers. I knew that didn't work. I thought AA was a cult, and AA was for smart, educated, rich people, not for a bum like me. And so I'm living on the streets, and I did what bums do on the street. I look like a bum, I smell like a bum, and I panhandle like a bum. I remember I had these construction boots, and the right boot was missing the front. I had blood-stained soil pants on. It was June up in New York. It gets hot like it is now. I had a turtleneck and a zip-up jacket, and I'm sweating and cold at the same time. I didn't know I was going through withdrawal. And I needed to get a drink in me to stop me from shaking. For little dauphines out there, I have a little story about non-conference approved dry goods. I can talk to you about that another time. But the last few years out there, it was booze and Valium, and I couldn't get away from it, no matter how much I wanted to or not. I can't tell you how many times when I was drinking, I would curse the bottle for doing this to me and curse myself, what I had turned myself into. I knew my family despised me for what I had turned into. And I couldn't even look in the mirror if there was a mirror present to take a look at what was looking back. How did I get here? So I'm rolling through the streets for about six months or so. And I took up residency in the back of an abandoned building. And I did that not willingly because I weighed about 130 pounds at the time. I'm rolling around with hep C. I'm urinating blood and I'm dying of alcoholism. If I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was afraid anyone would knock me on my back if I got into a, t- a, hus- a hassle with anyone. 
The streets are really hot. There was something called Operation Pressure Point back then, which means the police can do a sweep, whether you were clean or not, and just take you to the precinct. And I knew one more arrest, I was going to go to prison this time, and I don't want to go there. I was afraid for my life, so I, I find this abandoned building, and I go to the back of the abandoned building, and I hunk it back there behind one of these old metal steel radiators. And as long as I had a pint of whiskey, I was okay. And if I hustled up enough money to wash some pills down, it was okay. Not great, but it was okay. I don't have to be out on the street, and this was my existence. And all I wanted to do was die. I would have these little moments of realizing what I am. And how much uh, I miss my family, but I couldn't go near them anymore because they want nothing to do with me. There was no girlfriend, there was no job, there was no nothing. I got to June 23rd, 1988, and it wasn't even an opportunity, if you will, to wallow in self-pity. That was taken away from me. All options were taken away from me. There wasn't even in my mind about thinking about going to AA, going to treatment, doing the steps, getting a sponsor. All of that was removed. Because I think if God would have gave me that, that would have been, again, self-reliance, figuring out what I need to do to get better this time. It was all removed. In fact, when I got into my seven treatment center, I didn't even know it was the month of June. But you know when you go into treatment, you do the admissions, and those intake people are so happy to see you? Today's the first day of your rest of your life. Isn't it great? Be grateful. Grateful. And then they take you in and they do this list, a check-off list of all your personal belongings. And I'm saying, you're looking at it. I, I have nothing. And this particular day, I remember I, I came to, like I usually do, when the shakes, when Bill says the morning terror man is one, that's what I would come to. And I needed a drink. And as I get up off the floor, I collapsed back down on the floor. And I began to weep. And I couldn't stop crying. But we live life forward and understand it backwards. I had no idea what was going on with me then. I do now. It was just years of betrayals, years of alcoholism, years of frustration, anger, despair, and humiliation that finally broke. And the only other time I cried before that was at my mom's funeral. It was like 14, 15 years of not shedding a tear. Even when I got arrested, even when I got beat up, even when I got thrown out, didn't shed a tear. I just looked for a drink. Because alcohol works on my alcoholism. And when I got up off the floor, I collapsed and I start to cry. And I don't know what's going on with me. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm losing my mind. This is crazy. Where's all this coming from? And I had this moment. And for me, this was the gift of desperation. My first contact, if you will, with the God. The first time a God introduced himself to me, if you will. It didn't sound godly, nor did it feel godly. But looking back on it now, it was entirely godly. It was called a gift of desperation. It was a moment where desperation screamed louder than my ego. And it shut me down for a moment. And in that, that very same God that I despised, that I blamed for everything including what I had turned into, a bum on the street. I begged for mercy. And here's my exact words. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I wasn't thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't thinking about going to treatment. I don't want to die. And it seemed like as if it didn't really happen, but it seemed like if I get a drink in me, I'm going to die. And if I don't get a drink in me, I'm going to die. I don't know what to do. And I learned something. Help is a complete prayer. 
which is the intent of what I was offering to this God. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I don't care what you do with me. That's desperation, and I became teachable. Alcohol beat me into a state of reasonableness. I didn't care if I went to treatment. I didn't care if they put me in the boys' club. I don't care if they joined the Cub Scout. I don't care where you put me. It's got to be better than this life. And I was willing at that point, willing to exchange what wasn't working for something new that I knew did. Because people in AA would bring meetings into treatment, bless their hearts. In the middle of these tears, I hear something that says, enough, I have other work for you to do. There's no one in this abandoned building hallway. And I hear as if someone whispers in this ear, leaned over as if Tommy leaned over and said something to me, enough, I have other work for you to do. This is crazy. This is insane. I'm getting wet brain. I'm hearing voices. I bought the farm. I'm completely out of my mind. Here's the good news. I was completely out of my mind. And I pray my mind never returns. When I hear people getting angry, I'm going to call them up and give them a piece of my mind. I say, give them the whole thing. You really don't need it. Because if you're anything like me, when the mind starts, you ever notice as soon as we wake up in the morning, the mind's in full running gear? Like you open up your eyes at 5 o'clock and it's already in the middle of an argument that you don't remember having. I wake usually up at 5 a.m., By the time I put my feet on the floor, I'm arguing with a guy who died 20 years ago. And it follows me throughout the day because my alcoholism doesn't come in a bottle of whiskey. My alcoholism sits up here in the head. And what my alcoholism does is to get a life by taking mine. See, my alcoholism can't go to the liquor store and buy whiskey. It needs me to go do it, and it convinces me it's okay to do. For me, the mind's a four-letter word. It's the greatest predator to hit the planet. Ever. Why we tell newcomers, bring the body and the mind to follow, boggles me. You don't want my mind showing up anywhere in Jacksonville at any time, let alone a cat with one day. Why do we do this? Barnes & Nobles has a section called self-help. I don't need to give any help to self anymore. When it has a section, no help to self, I'll buy a book there. So in this moment, I, I'm, I'm completely Looney Tunes. I'm hearing voices. I feel like I'm going to die. And the only thing I can think of in that moment was to call my dad. The only guy on the planet who was going to come get me in this condition would be my dad. Now, we hadn't seen each other, let alone spoke, for a while. I got thrown out, never to come back. He told me, when you're ready to do something, you call me. Until then, stay away from the house. And I went to a, a payphone. Newcomers, we had something called payphones on the street. You put money in, you see. And I was going to call my dad, Collect. And I couldn't, I, couldn't make, I couldn't make the call. How can I call my dad looking and smelling like I do? This will surely break his heart. I don't know what happened to me the rest of the day. My dad was in Atlantic City, New Jersey with his wife, spending some time down there. And on that particular day, as he says, he was awakened out of his sleep. He never called it God. He calls it God now. He was awakened out of his sleep at around 2.30 in the morning. And he said, something told me to go look for you. And he says, I tried to go back to bed and I couldn't do it. Because when God calls, God calls. God works through people, not only us. It's, it's sometimes the policemen arrest us. They're saving our lives sometimes. Sometimes the parents of boys says, you can't work here anymore. Tommy talked about that last night. It was a life-saving gift. 
And my dad got dressed at around 2.30 in the morning and heads from Atlantic City, New Jersey to the, to the Lower East Side, driving through the worst parts of town looking for yours truly. And some point during that day, he finds me standing on a street corner. I can't even fathom what it's like to find your son standing on a corner. I come from an Italian-American family. I'm the first male born, which meant I was supposed to be pope or president, by the way. And there I am standing on a corner, look like, like I do, as they used to say back in the day, tore up from the floor up. And my dad drove up and got out of the car, and all he did was call my name. My dad's a rough and tumble guy back in the day, but it was a gentle voice he met me with. And the very first thing I tell my dad is, I'm okay, I'm fine. Not like, hi dad, how are you doing? I'm okay, I'm fine. Protect alcoholism to the bitter end. And when he got to me, I collapsed. This I'll never forget. And I remember my dad's going underneath my arms and holding me up. And what he kept repeating in this moment was, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son to this. Over and over and over again. At that moment, it didn't feel good for both of us. But God had both of our roots grasping new soil. A huge, spectacular upheaval was about to happen. It didn't feel that good. It didn't feel like it was God, but it was very much God. We look back on it, live life forward, understand it backwards. Both of our egos were shut down for a moment. And I got placed in my seven treatment center. That's over 33 years ago that happened. And every time I meet my dad, and Marion's been with me many times, my dad tells me that story. Only now he calls it God, and he weeps when he tells the story. Because I look back on that, God uses everything and anyone to save one of us. Save a wretch like me to get him into Alcoholics Anonymous and have this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. That's putting it mildly. What we get to experience here, what I've experienced, is what Bill talks about is utopia for fun and for free in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need an insurance policy. I don't need to be the right religion. I don't need to be the right color. I could have no money in the clothes on my back and you will say, welcome, come on in. That's the sacredness of Alcoholics Anonymous where people like us, our lives get reborn and resurrected in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, and I speak for myself, what we ought to be in AA, if you allow me to get on the soapbox, is a pep rally for the power of God, a pep rally for what God does for folks like us, brings the dead back to life. This is, this is the only place that I know. <laughs> this is the only place that I'm aware of Well, I can tell you about the most disgusting, horrible, terrible things I did. And you said, here's my number. Give me a call. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. But to tell you in a general way what it was like, what happened, what I'm trying to be like today. Uh, Picked up a drink about 14 years old. I'm an old Brooklyn, New York boy. And I remember the 60s and I remember the 70s. It was a cool time before MTV and disco ruined everything. So it was a pretty cool time. And uh, growing up in the 60s in Brooklyn, Tommy hung out in the woods. We hung out on street corners. That's what you did. You played music, we listened to rock and Motown, the older guys drank cold 45 beer, and they flirted with the girls and roughhouse with each other. The summertime, it was a scene, it was the coolest place to be. It was a time where you could, kids could walk to school without having to be chaperoned, and you leave your door open, tell your neighbor, watch my house, and everything would be cool. It was kind of like the country. It was a Camelot time for us. And on the corner or in the schoolyard were always 20, 30 guys hanging out. You know, rebels without a clue, but it was a fun time. 
And I used to watch them, and I wanted to be like them. In fact, when I would see them drink beer, I loved the effect produced in them by drinking beer. How do you get like that? How do you talk to the pretty girls? How do you strut around the street corner knowing everything? How do you get that? Yeah? I'm 14 years old, and I'm not okay already. God gave me a couple of gifts. One of them was music growing up. I think I popped out of mama playing an instrument. I mean, you give me any instrument, give me a week, and I'll learn it. And I learned how to play piano, I learned how to play saxophone, drums was my thing. And I was getting lots of accolades. My family wanted to send me to this place called Juilliard. They said, you got a very special uh, uh, gifted child here. It was like that. And no matter how many accolades I would get, it was never enough. I think it was Clancy who said, where people have to be treated extra special just to feel normal. I was just not okay. At home, I had a guy who was kind of baffling and powerful. I called him Dad. If anyone's ever seen the movie Goodfellas, that Robert De Niro guy, I thought was an autobiography about my dad. That's the type of guy I grew up with. There weren't fireside chats, roasting marshmallows, saying, tell me, son, did you have a great day? He threw money at you and expected you to grow up right away. And I had an alcoholic mom, full-blown alcoholic mom, who was addicted to every pill you can think of, and narcotics. Her name was Josephine. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman. But she had what we have and never found what we have. And we, my dad would take her to shrink after shrink after emergency room after emergency room. And at 14 years old, in January 1974, after about a half a dozen attempts, she committed suicide. She finally did it. I remember waking up early that morning, hearing my dad, very first time in my life, screaming and crying over the phone on a 911 call, hurry, I think my wife is dead. And my body froze in fear. And not, not, not conscious of it, but somewhere in the back here, I knew God and I were done. My mom took me to church. My mom told me how to, taught me how to pray. She always told me how much God loves everyone, how loving and merciful God is in all things possible with God. And I'm watching this event take place, and then she takes her life so much for God, I'm out. And I got cast into the sea of self-reliance. So I'm standing on a street corner of 14. I'm not okay. Ages 8 to 10. What I always refer to as a distant relative was doing things to me as a little boy that he should have been arrested for. And it was another secret. And I always remember feeling dirty and shame on the inside, but I was threatened. Don't tell anyone because bad things would happen to me. So at 14, I'm bottled up with a lot of rage and a lot of embarrassment and a lot of shame. And I don't know where to go with this. There's no one to talk to. And I'm watching the older guys drink beer, and they don't seem to be feeling what I'm feeling. And so one night I grabbed a quart of beer. I remember them teasing me a little bit, but I grabbed a quart of beer. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I start drinking halfway through a Mickey Mouse quart of beer. I'm feeling wonderful. I'm feeling absolutely incredible. And little by slowly, as I'm knocking out that quart of beer, the fear of uh, being with my dad was removed. I was terribly afraid of him, very intimidated by him. He was a tough, tough guy. And the pain that I couldn't get my head around, it took me years in here and outside help to finally put that to bed of my mom's suicide. The shame and embarrassment that went along with it. I'm alcoholic. I was, I was crushed when I knew she was dead. I didn't know what to do with my life. The pain hurt so bad. But I was just as concerned as to what people in the neighborhood were saying about me. I'm the kid whose mom committed suicide. 
because my ego was still alive and breathing very well. And so I pick up a quart of beer, and by the time I'm halfway through, I'm feeling good, and I polish it off, I'm feeling even better. The music got better. My friends were the best guys in the world. I grew to be about the biggest Tommy. I'm like 6'2", 220. I had arrived, and every girl on the street corner wanted me in the worst way. (laughs) Why are you laughing for? (laughs) I got four screens up here. (laughs) That caught up with me because I remember many times drinking. You know, when you're drinking, she gets prettier. And as I'm drinking, I swore she looked just like Bo Derek. And I come to the next morning, she looked more like Bo Diddley. And I wonder how I got there. You know? <clears throat> my first drunk was wonderful. I remember going home that night. Yeah? I'm going home that night, and I get to my house. And I don't want to go in the house for the first time. I tasted the honey. I tasted drunk. I never want to be sober again. Mind you, I'm 14. I know when I walk into that house, that's where Dad died. Uh, mom died. That's where dad lives. I don't want to go there anymore. And I don't want to go to school on Monday sober. See, I don't realize how much bondage I'm in until I taste a little bit of freedom. I taste a little bit of freedom. I look back and say, that's bondage. I'm not going there anymore. It's like being in that bad relationship. Many of us know what that's like. We know what it feels like. We know what it sounds like being in, in a bad relationship. For whatever reason, we get out of it. And we look back saying, what was I thinking with this person? It was like that. How did I last 14 years without a drink? <clears throat> I'm not going to school sober. I'm never going to be sober again. I want drunk. And I never want it to end. And I pursue that just about into the gates of insanity or death. I was looking to feel comfortable all the time. That kid at 14 who needed an outside solution to fix me in here walked right into Alcoholics Anonymous sober, physically sober. And what I learned the hard way is that being physically sober has little to do with getting recovered from alcoholism. It just means I'm sober, which is a great thing, but my alcoholism lives up in here, not in a bottle of whiskey. Every time I got out of treatment, I never picked up the first drink drunk. Always picked up the first drink sober because life hurt. Yeah. I was so insecure growing up and in my early AA that I would play a role that I think you want me to be just to be okay and move further and further and further away from God's intentions for me. As long as I get comfortable, I'm okay. I was always seeking comfort, seeking to feel good emotions all the time. What I've learned for me now, comfort is a four-letter word. Because when I'm seeking comfort, it's based on what I think is going to make me comfortable. This is already a bad plan from the beginning. Thomas Merton talks about seeking spiritual joy, which is completely unaffected from any external condition. That's a soul event. And this whole thing called Alcoholics Anonymous is all about the soul. It's a soulful walk. I don't know about you, but my soul, the God in me, like the God in you, knows where to go, what to say, what to do, and how to be. It's the mind that always screws things up. So I'm drinking at 14 years old, and the weekends progress into during the week. And my alcoholism, like a progression in a crescendo in music, gets bigger, and it gets louder and more infectious. And when Bill says there were many unhappy scenes in the sumptuous apartment, I totally identify with that. My dad would read me the riot act about becoming a product of my environment. My two younger brothers idolized me. I was the gifted musician in the neighborhood that was going to make it out. I was, this was my ticket out, music. 
And a lot of, I had a little, little following of these young kids. And my brothers couldn't be more proud that that's my brother. I'm into drinking a few years, and now they're embarrassed by me because I was sloppy. I was disorderly, foul language, and became a thief, a liar, and a cheat. You know the drill. And one day I had this great idea about stealing from my dad. I couldn't find any money to take in the house. We were living in Staten Island, New York. I just moved there. I'm about uh, just turning 18. And I discovered my dad's checkbook in a, in a dresser drawer. And I had this great idea that if I forge his name on the check, I'll go down to the local store. They all know my dad. I'll give him some story. They'll cash the check. And that's what I did. I wrote out a check for like 20 bucks. The guy looked at me kind of cockeyed, but he didn't want my dad coming in. So we cashed the check, and I bought some beer. He didn't even check ID, anything. I thought I hit Powerball at this point. I'm about as sharp as a bowling ball back then. I thought back then when you cash a check, it just vanished into space. I knew nothing about checking statements. Yeah? So I'm doing this. And one day I called home and my kid brother said, the old man's looking for, what did you do now? I knew what I did. You stole from dad again. And I'm thinking, he always has money on him. What's a few hundred dollars? What is the problem here? It's just a few hundred dollars. I didn't get up in here that I stole from my dad. I couldn't see that. Most families, you leave your stuff around. They couldn't do that with me in the house anymore. It wasn't the money. You know, when I go out and make amends, I can look at, well, I took 200 from you, and here's 200 plus interest. And you're saying it's not the money. I'm looking at it as an external harm. He's looking at it as an internal wound. And that's how my dad was feeling. My brothers were feeling. I couldn't see that. Alcoholism blinds me from the truth. That's its job. It doesn't give me compassion. It doesn't give me understanding. And it's definitely not giving me anything godly. Wants me dead will settle for me drunk. And so when my dad found me standing on, uh, sitting in some car right off the street corner with some young lady I met the night before. Only alcoholics know that love and stalking are synonymous. So I meet this young lady and we're sitting in the car and I, I thought I was something. I got the windows rolled down. I got the fake jewelry on. My shirt's buttoned down on my navel. The music's on loud. I got the lean going over. And I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and I'm thinking, you realize who you're with yet? I thought it was like Snoop Dogg, Dirty Harry rolled into one. It was a beautiful thing. <laughs> and my dad rolled up, and he screamed my name. And the first thing I did was tell her, you talk to him, I'm running away. My dad caught me, and I blamed her, and I blamed the guys in the neighborhood. And then I pulled out the trump card. Mom died, I'm all confused. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And my dad put me in my first treatment center. Now, he didn't know what treatment was, nor did I, but someone got my dad's ear and said, your son needs to go to this place in, in Long Island, New York. It's a treatment center. We drive up this day. It's the same place. It was a big psych hospital with the treatment center inside. It's the same place we took my mom probably 20 times. And I'm thinking, this is where it ends. I'm going to pick up where she left off. And 28 days in, I did push-ups and sit-ups. Talked about my feelings, fell in love about 17 times. I got discharged on the 28th day and was drunk in an hour. I don't need treatment. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm only in here to get my dad off my back. I made my second. I made my third. I made my fourth. I made my fifth treatment center. And somewhere going into my fifth treatment center, I am convinced of what I am. I even have a powerful desire not to drink. 
but that's not enough to keep me sober. It'll bring me to someone to say, can you help me? I can't do this anymore, but I need something more. More power was needed, and I was out of all power. And I remember going into my fifth treatment center, and I had marks on my body from some other things I was putting into me besides alcohol. I know what I am. Everyone knows what I am. I hate Alcoholics Anonymous. I hate every other fellowship. I still hate God. I hate my church. Just somebody give me a break. I looked at the world as it pertained to me. And I always looked at the world out from my mess, never in at the mess. The last inventory I was going to take was mine, but I was busy taking yours. When the big book says in the fourth step, we're prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We're kind of uplifted and looking down on our own life and saying, this is the mess I've made. I couldn't see that back then. I was consumed with me. I got to feel comfortable at all times. And anyone stood in my way was an annoyance. And so I go into this fifth treatment center. And what they did, it was a 28-day model back then. And they held on to me for nine consecutive weeks, which was unheard of back then. And after nine weeks of being in an inpatient lockdown facility, the type of places where my side of the door has no doorknob, you're not getting out. Yeah? I did push-ups and sit-ups. I went to group. I'm eating. I'm bathing. I'm sleeping. They're medicating me. After nine, nine weeks of being in an environment like this, I start to look relatively human. You know? Put on some weight. And they says, we have to discharge you Saturday. We can't hold you anymore. And I did the usual, come back, I know what I need to do. I'll be okay. And as soon as I hit the fresh air in Amityville, Long Island, walking out of that hospital, I realized at that moment, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to look for a job. I don't know how to ask a woman out on a date. I've been out in the streets. There's no courting. There's no dating on the street. If she has alcohol, I'm in love with her. And that's about it. I don't know where to go. And I quickly noticed being out on the street how fast life was moving. People on a Saturday morning going about their morning chores. Cars are going by awfully fast. It was awfully loud. I need to go back into treatment. I need something. And all the voices in the head started to talk. You know those voices. Hmm? Like when I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I think I'm sitting there alone. There's 45 people at the table. (laughs) Ask an alcoholic, how you doing? I'm so tired. If anyone drove here alone in their car tonight, if anyone happens to drove here in their car alone tonight, if you think about the drive over here, you were not alone in that car. There was like 45 people in that car talking to you at the same time, and we talked back. So when I had my first cup of coffee, I got all these different players in there talking to me. So by the time I finish my first cup of coffee, I need three more because I'm already exhausted. <laughs> One voice said to me when out of treatment, I said, we need a drink. We need a drink right now. I'll go to AA tomorrow. I need a drink. I just need one drink. One drink. I promise you, one little drink. Just take the edge off. Settle the belly down. Settle the nerves and we'll go to AA. Can't get a drink. Get a bump. Get a pill. Get something. Just take the edge off and we'll go to an AA meeting. What I found out the hard way in Alcoholics Anonymous, that my illness will go underground and resurface in other areas, regardless of how long I'm sober, as long as I'm untreated. They're called sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and fear sprees and gambling sprees. Fill in the blank because I can't be present with you. I need something to take me out of this kind of misery. But if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm saying, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. Everything's great. I'm wonderful. I'm Moses. It's all good. (laughs) But I'm not okay. I'm really not okay. 
And so what do you do? You go back, I go back to my dad's house. There's nowhere else to go. I have no money. I have no job. I have no girlfriend. I have nothing. So I go back to my dad's house and he put me up. And on Saturday and Sunday, I'm wrestling with my own alcoholism. You know that place where it's screaming at you, we need a drink, where it gets so loud it begins to feel physical? My body did not need alcohol, not after nine weeks of being physically separate. I'm as sober as I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I have no post-acute withdrawal syndrome going on. Nothing. But my mind said, yeah, you need a drink. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't even carry on a conversation with my dad because I've got to get out of here and get a drink in me. And then I'll go to AA. And on Monday morning, I'll never forget this, guys. It was Monday morning. It was still dark out. I snuck out of the house, jumped in one of the cars that my dad had, and headed to the other part of South Brooklyn. And I drive up to a liquor store. I know everything's closed, which annoyed me. I had a plan. I'm going to get one pint of whiskey, get back in the car, drink and drive back to dad's house. This is going to be a beautiful day. And when I get there, everything's closed. Now, what I have found, and listening to enough fifth steps, enough first steps, and hearing enough of your stories, it seems that we all have to meet our demons at some point. Figuratively speaking, face to face with our own demons. It's that aha moment where I know I was in trouble, I'm in serious trouble here. And for me, that happened after my fifth treatment center. Because what I was doing was pacing up and down on the sidewalk, and here comes the, the clammy forehead, the sweaty hands, the vibrating chest, the belly's upside down, and I'm thinking I really need a drink like I'm going through a withdrawal. There was nothing wrong with my body, but my mind says we need a drink. It owned me. See, I think for the longest time that I have thoughts. My thinking, I have thoughts. My thinking, I have thoughts. If they're mine, the ones I don't like, I can just get rid of. In reality, thoughts have me. They lock in and they take me. And that's what was going on right, right back then. And the only thing that's going to get in the way of that is God. No human power can relieve me of my alcoholism. Now we know the fellowship for me is a bandit on an open moon. I need you a lot more than you need me. But I go home after the meeting, and I put my head on the pillow. I need something bigger to shut this thing down and start to live from the soul. And so I finally get that pint of whiskey, and it wasn't getting in the car and driving. You know, when you guzzle it down just to still the nerves, and I guzzle down a pint of whiskey, and suddenly I feel like I can breathe again. My belly settled down. The hands stopped sweating. I felt I was getting control. I felt like I was back in power again. I never made it to the car because I'm an alcoholic. I had to get a second pint of whiskey. It happened all the time. My mind says one drink. The body says you need another one. And then the third drink's ordered for me, and here comes the craving, which for me is always intensified. It's never satisfied. My track record proves that. But my mind doesn't tell me that. It convinces me I'm going to have one drink like a gentleman and be nice and go home. And next thing I know, I'm on one of the worst drunks ever. Got arrested a few times, and bad things happened to me. Got beat up a whole bunch of times, and I became a full-fledged thief on the street, all for the price of alcohol. And I didn't see that coming. Why would my alcoholism announce its arrival? Why would my alcoholism say, hey, listen, get ready, call your sponsor, because tomorrow I'm coming to wreck your life? It doesn't do that. It shows up. It shows up bearing gifts, like in a nice relationship. It shows up bearing gifts, like in this great job promotion. 
It shows up by being suddenly popular in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need you. I'm popular. I found a new God. It's called popularity. It's called money. It's called property. It's called prestige. My old sponsor would ask me, Peter, how much money do you think you need? I said, I don't know. He said, how much money do you think you need? I said, I don't know, a million, two million dollars. He's the wrong answer. I said, what's the answer? Just enough money not to need God. By God's grace, I wound up in my sixth treatment center. And at this point, I had got thrown out of a, a flea bag motel on Capadano Boulevard. And uh, one of the, by the water over there. One of these real swanky joints. It's like a, a club underneath and a motel in the new management every two weeks. <laughs> Those short stay places. I'm living in there. And how I'm living there, I became friends with the barmaid. She felt bad for me. She says, hang out. That's all it was. And I would, just, I would just live there. I wasn't bathing. I wasn't eating. I was just living there. But I was drinking. And one night, I'll never forget it, she finished her shift. I don't know, it was 3 or 4 a.m., whatever it was. And she crashed out. She went to sleep. And I knew she made a lot of money at the bar. And I was going into her purse to steal the money to get out of there. But what I discovered was a bottle of pills, about a half a bottle of Valium. And I says, there is a God. My prayers have been answered. And I swallowed them all down. I'll never forget this. And I washed them down. I was drinking Jack Daniels at the time. I washed them down with some Jack. And I never forget this. It's almost horrifying when I think about the place I was brought to. That I got back into bed and welcomed the idea of dying by going to sleep. Because this hurt too much. I hurt too many people. I'm in embarrassment wherever I go. And I can't get out. I can't get out of alcoholism. AA doesn't work. Treatment doesn't work. My church doesn't work. I can't get out. I just want to go away. And when that stuff started to hit and kick in, and I could feel myself rolling back, I had this little moment of clarity. And it was this. When my mom committed suicide by eating a truck full of pills, what the men in my family told me was, mom was a woman, women are weak, men are strong. The Marinelli men don't do this. Mom was a woman. She was weak. It was a gender issue. Suicide, I interpreted as being a gender issue because of some old belief systems. They were trying to help me. And as I'm rolling back in this bed and this stuff's starting to hit, I realize this has nothing to do with gender. This has everything to do with being an alcoholic because this is where my alcoholism takes me to. I want to die. When Polly told her story the other night about being in a hotel, I could feel the bumps on my arm because I know what it's like to be there. Almost everyone in this room knows what it's like to be there. I just want to die and go away. It hurts too much. And I will tell you, in my years in Alcoholics Anonymous, at doing all of this work, life still can hurt. And I can still be afraid. And I still don't know which way to go. And I'm not sure what to say. And I feel inadequate around successful people. I feel really like a broker around very rich people. These things still haunt me. The difference is I have a God I can turn to and a sponsor I can call. And men in Alcoholics Anonymous say, I'm not doing okay today. And they remind me that I come from God, I belong to God, and I will return to God. But while I'm here, I'm God's property, and nothing can hurt me. Because I found a solution in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not just to not drink. That was removed from me in, in, in detox. 
but how to do life on his terms and play by his rules and walk head up and shoulder square. Mm. All in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for fun and for free. I signed myself out of the six treatments after a day and a half because I couldn't do it anymore. The pain of detoxing, the idea of going through another 28-day thing, only because I know I'm going to use anyway. This is a waste of time. I'm a fraud. My name is Peter Marinelli. I'm a fraud. Nothing good ever happens to me. That's what I was thinking. And I can't walk into this place called AA. They're better people than me. And I went to the streets. I remember my very first night out on the streets. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to hustle money on the street and panhandle. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. I'm getting hungry and I need a drink and I have no money. What do you do? I remember the very first time I panhandled, I was mortified. Going up to someone and giving some nonsense story. I need a buck or two for a token on the train. I'm thinking the entire planet's watching me. Guy threw two bucks at me. I did it. A few months into that, that's how I made money. No problem. Standing by the foot of the Manhattan Bridge in lower Manhattan in the middle of the night, trying to stop someone in their car, tell them I need some money, and they curse at you and spit on you, but you just take it. It's part of the price. Any lunch to get drunk. I don't care what you call me, what you do to me. I need a drink. I need whiskey. I need pills. I'll do anything to get it. Mm. My any lens to do something was always there. It didn't go away because I came into AA. I had to be brought to a place of reasonableness to go to any lens to find this God to get sober. It was always there. And my process of finding God was going in and not out. That God doesn't love me if I change. God's been loving me so that I change my whole life. It was the aha moment I found in the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have heroes in here that are still here carrying the message, belonging to a home group. It inspires me, it gives me passion, it gives me endurance. And God's, God's the orchestrator of this whole thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Why we don't talk about God and AA as much as we ought to, I don't know. But we ought to. I loved our speaker this afternoon, made no apologies about God. God bless you. And I'm back to that hallway again after my sixth treatment center. I was outside the Port Authority in, in, in Midtown Manhattan one day. I don't know to this day how I got there and what happened to me afterwards. You know when you're out there, whether it's Park Avenue or Park Bench, and your kid looks at you and you say, Daddy, why are you drunk again? Mommy, why are you passed out? Things like that. Or the boss just looks at when you come in. Or just something. It could be anything. Or you get arrested again. Or sometimes we look in the mirror and say, it's over. And I remember being outside the Port Authority, and not having your side of the Port Authority in Midtown Manhattan. And I had this aha moment. I realized I reek. I'm filthy. My fingernails are filthy. My hair's oily and, and greasy. I don't know the last time I took a bath. Or had a square meal. It was boosting Twinkies from the bodega, and, and that, that was dinner. And what I did in this moment was not beg God for mercy, but curse out the God I despise for doing this to me. 
screaming at the top of my lungs. Every four-letter word you could think of at God. I blended right into that neighborhood, by the way. They didn't even notice me. And then June 23rd, 1988 showed up. That day is more important than my own birthday. My sober day was given to me by God. I didn't quit drinking. I didn't put the plug in a jug. God separated me when there was nothing left in me. My sponsors often said, and I asked them about this, how he was surrendered. I got surrendered on that day. I don't have the ability to surrender. I don't have the ability to ask God for help. I don't have the ability to go to any lens. I don't have the ability to do anything. For years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would say from my heart how hard I've been working on my sobriety. My first few years, anniversary time, I've been working really hard on my, my sobriety. I'm really working hard on my sobriety. But we live life forward and understand it backwards. And what I think is the truth becomes a new truth at some point. And it's this. I haven't done anything for this thing, this gift called sobriety. What I did was destroy my life and wreck it. And God gave me this on a silver platter with men and women and alcoholics anonymous. And they said, do this to get what we got. And God gave me a mustard seed of willingness to do what you do. And to get what you get. And that many times my sponsors and AA members told me to walk down that road that I'd never been down before. I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know how to get from point A to point B. You tell me to get a God and follow 12 steps I know nothing about. And the only thing that allows me to put one foot in front of the other and chop wood, carry water, is the fire that burns in my soul. It's called the spirit to get right with him. And he will remove every obstacle. Because that's what I was searching for in the bottle, uh, bottom of a bottle of whiskey. Just to be right with the life, be right with God, be right with my fellows, and I can never do that. No matter how much alcohol I would pour in me, it was short-lived. And the worse I got, there was no experience with that. It was drinking just to live. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no price tag on here. There's no, there's no fee at the door. You just say, I have a desire to drink, come on in. And they give me back a life. And they keep replenishing it by me giving it all away. This whole thing for me in AA makes absolutely no sense. If we go out to a civilian on the street and say, listen, this is what we do. We rip our life up. We spend time in prison. We're adulterers. We're liars. We're with these. We're, you, we've done it all. But my boss gave me a promotion to run his company. I'm going out with an Ivy League graduate. She wants to marry me. You're making it up. It makes no sense. But in the world of the spirit, in God's world, it makes perfect sense. Maybe God doesn't like the sin, but I do know he loves the sinner. And that's what I am. And he takes a wretch like me and places me here. When I came home from Minnesota, I was brought to my first home group in a town called Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. If anyone's ever seen Saturday Night Fever back in the day, that's where I grew up. Thus, the hair. <laughs> My first home group was full of guys like, you know, Joey Bag of Donuts, Frankie Head of Lettuce. These were the elders of the group. Uh, we thought they changed uh, how it works into how you're doing. <laughs> guys in my home group thought The Godfather was an educational movie when I showed up there, but uh, they were good 12-steppers. And my first sponsor was a big book guy. The rest of them really weren't big book guys. But they were carrying this mess. It was those days where I get in the car. What are you doing? Uh, nothing. We'll be there in 10 minutes. Be downstairs. I'm not lying. You go downstairs. They beep the horn. Get in the car. Where are we going? To the Bronx. Where are we going? To Staten Island. Where are we going? To Long Island. Then you get there. By the way, you're speaking. They would do things like that. 
But I just want to share, because I only have a few minutes left, uh, just a couple of things. Be careful when a speaker says that. They're usually going to stay for another hour. Um, <laughs> I was in Minnesota. From Long Island, New York, they sent me out to Minnesota. And I just want to share what AA does. The men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was living in a town called Hastings, Minnesota. And there was a meeting called the Three Legacies meeting somewhere in Minneapolis. It's a good hour drive on a Friday night, 7.30 meeting. 300 people would show up dressed for this meeting. Everyone looked proper and excited about recovery. And someone took me there, and I was petrified walking in. I'd be pinned up against the back of the wall. It was a guy, Chuck Arthur, come sit up front with us. He says, I can't do it. I wear a size 10 shoe. My brother sent me his size 8 sneakers. My waist was only about 27 at the time. I was wearing my brother's pants. And I had a jacket. I had a jacket that didn't fit. And I had no money. I had no job. And it seemed like AAs rallied around me for that. What these men would do on a Friday night, pardon me, forgive me, is drive from Minneapolis to Hastings and pick me up. And you had the meeting in a car on the way to the meeting. It'd be some cutting up and ribbon and, you know, busting chops, but they would talk about recovery because they knew they had a youngin in the car. And then we get to the meeting, I'd stand in the back, and when the meeting was over, they put me in a car and they said, we're going to go eat, I'm petrified, you can't go eat, I, I, I can't pay. And one of this guy, uh, Kip S., he said something to me. I'll never forget. It was a very New York-ish kind of phrase. He says, it's okay, you're with us now. I grew up with that phrase, you're with us. And they took me to this diner, and they, they ordered a burger and some fries for me. They gave me a little something to go home with. And I'm meeting the car on the way home. And they took different shifts, picking me up on each Friday night. And I would go there. I think I made my way up to like maybe the 10th row at that point. But I wanted what they had to offer. And one night at the diner, we were, in a, we were in a Perkins diner. And there was a whole bunch of us. And this guy, Kip, gave me a, one of those little AA coins. Those little AA coins they give with Bill and Bob on it. And he said, hey, I want you to have this. Now, as a newcomer, this is like getting MVP playing for the Yankees or something. A guy with like 10 years gives me an AA coin. I must be doing something right. I mean, I'm serious. I'm, he gave me a coin. Maybe I'm going to make it. It was kind of that kind of thing. And when I got back to my, my sober house, I got these little bunks in there, and I put the thing on, on, on the nightstand. I made my prayer, whatever meditation I can come up with, and I get back into bed. So far, so good. But the mind, the predator, is where alcoholism lives. And then it woke up. After praying and after meditating, after a wonderful evening and getting this coin, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding with this? These people are in Minnesota. They're smarter than you. You're from Brooklyn. You're never going to make it. Your family's still not talking to you. And here comes the Rolodex of stuff. And it hooks me. Because all I need to do is lean into one thought and 45 come behind it. And I'm laying in this bed and I'm thinking, I'm going to head out the door. And I began to weep, and I'm begging, please, God, 
please, God, don't make me go out the door. If I walk out the door, I know now I'm not coming back. And what I did was, and I've shared this story from a million podiums. It sounds silly, but for me, it was just, it was right. I got up out of bed and I took that coin off the nightstand and I tucked it under my pillow. And I'm praying that the AA angels would show up and keep me from walking out the door because I'm a dead man. But this mind, this mind had such a grip on me. And I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning in that bed and I said, maybe a bum like me can make it. Maybe you guys have something. And I haven't stopped coming back. That family of mine that was riddled with alcoholism and my shenanigans little by slowly has been put back together. My dad's still around, thank God. He's gotten older. He's slowed down a little bit, but he's still a house of fire. I remember when he met, uh, when he met Marion, he immediately fell in love with her. He adores Marion, and this is big because he hates everybody, so this is a good thing. <laughs> One of my brothers has bipolar, really bad bipolar. He's an actor out in California. And he was having a, a really bad spell. And I went to talk to him, and I was telling my dad, we need to get him to a doctor. He's got to get medicated. We've got to fig- figure this out, etc." He was in a really bad hole. And I'll never forget the next day, I called Jimmy, who's doing the taping in the back there for Lee, and a handful of guys that I know in AA, because we know loneliness such as few do. And he said, do me a favor. My kid brother's having a bad time. He feels really alone. Would you guys pick up the phone and just call him and say hi? I'm a friend of Peter's, just seeing how you're doing. Like 10 guys were calling my brother. He had, he had friends in AA. They all knew him. He goes by the name of Sonny. Hey, Sonny, what's going on? It's, it's Bob from your brother's home group. What's happening? That's what AA men do. That's what AA women do. We suit up and show for fun and for free because we know about that hole. The only thing God wants from me is my soul. And I give him my soul and he's given me a life. I give him my life every day and he continues to give me purpose. I've given him my sinfulness day after day after day. He's given me forgiveness. I've given him my drunkenness and he continues to give me sobriety. I've given him my sobriety and each and every day he gives me the sacred rooms and the men and women in the meetings called Alcoholics Anonymous. And for this, I'm forever grateful. That's all I got. Peace.